He is risen. Amen. Good morning, TVC. Good morning for all of you who are joining us here. It is still morning, right? My name is Eric Solomon. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. And then I get the honor and the privilege, and, and, and by God's grace, I get to serve this campus as campus pastor here at TVC. And we're a campus of Wheaton Bible Church alongside our West Chicago campus and our Iglesia de Pueblo campuses. And together this morning across all of those campuses, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're new here, I want to say welcome to you. Right? We're so glad that you joined us this morning. We would love to help you find out more about this Jesus we keep talking about up here. And we'd also love to help you get connected within the community here. Uh, So please come find me or anybody that greeted you on the way in. We would love to help you get connected in this space. And if you're joining us online, I just want to say we're so glad that you are here. We love you and we cannot wait for the day where we get to worship together in the same space that risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now this morning, kind of like Good Friday, We gather before, not a cross that our Savior hung on, but an empty tomb to be recaptured by that Lord. To be recaptured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, one of the church's earliest church planners and missionaries, talks about the resurrection like this in 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 3 through 8, he says this. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This morning, this is the testimony of the empty tomb. This is the reality we testify to and the truth we commit our lives to by faith. Faith not in something we wish happened, not in something we imagine happened, but in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that actually happened. And if it didn't actually happen, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then Paul says in that same chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 that our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Without the resurrection of Jesus, our faith is futile, pointless, worthless, and we are still dead, lost, enslaved by our sins. But the good news of Jesus doesn't just stop at Good Friday. It unseals the grave and walks and talks and declares the peace of God on Easter Sunday. Because as Paul writes later, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And that reality has life-altering, world-changing, reality-shaping significance. As we gather before an empty tomb to relive the resurrection account of John 20, I want us to see for ourselves this morning this testimony that Paul passed on as of first importance. So for those of you here who even might be new to the Bible, before we get to the text, I want to say two things. One, like I said earlier, I am really glad that you are here. If you have any questions, if if you are wondering about this Bible that we keep talking about, we would love to introduce you not just to the Bible, but to the Jesus who wrote that Bible. But two, 
You can follow along with us on the screen. We'll have the text up. But I want to give you a crash course on what, why we talk about this ancient book so much. Right? You see, the Bible is not just a book. It's a collection of 66 books. And 66 books that were, not, that were just physically written and copied by human beings, they're books that were the entire time guided by God's spirit, where he worked to communicate to these authors who he is and what he has done in the world. These 66 books are not merely human They are a work of God through humans to reveal himself to humans because he loves us. This morning, we are in one of those 66 books, the Gospel of John, where the story of Jesus, God's son, is recorded from his birth to his death to his resurrection. And it's a story we dive into here in John 20. But I'm going to switch things up for those of you who have been with us before this morning. Instead of reading the whole story right now, I'm going to start at the end. And then that will shape how we walk through the text, right? So this this morning, the reading, we're going to read from John 20, 30 through 31. And then we're going to walk through John 20, 1 through 29 together with that, those last two verses in mind. And then I'm also making another change for you. When we read these two verses, I actually want us to read it together. Just like we read that Philippians passage, I want us to read it together and be shaped by God's word together. So if you're here with us on campus, but if you're also here with us online, I ask you all to stand as we read God's word together. We're going to read John 20, 30 through 31. And like I said, I want you to read with me. You ready? If you're ready, say amen. amen. All right, here we go. John 20, 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. You may be seated. The story we're about to enter into is the capstone on a story that started way back in John chapter 1. It is a story where sign after sign has been recorded, has been presented for one purpose and one purpose alone, John says, that all who read would believe. Each sign has been handpicked to put together a cohesive, a compelling reason to believe in Jesus. In other words, the gospel story is a story with witnesses. Each act of Jesus throughout the book of John has been building and testifying to his identity as the promised Messiah of God, come to save not just God's people, but all people who believe in him by faith. As the very Son of God, come to reveal God not just to God's people, but to all people, believe. And now in John 20, we are called to believe not just according to signs that have been building, but according to the testimony of four different witnesses. So as we track with the story, we're actually going to stop at each witness to see how they are transformed into witnesses for the message of the gospel. So our four stops in this story, our four resurrection witnesses are Mary, the first witness, the disciples, a group of fearful witnesses, Thomas, the skeptical witness, and Jesus, the ultimate witness. Mary, the disciples, Thomas, and Jesus. And as we relive the resurrection story this morning, we're going to be confronted by each witness. We'll be confronted by the gospel. We will encounter Jesus in each of these scenes. And so here is our main idea this morning if you're taking notes. The resurrection liberates witnesses for lives of gospel mission. 
My hope this morning is that through these encounters with these four witnesses, we might see in them and in ourselves how the resurrection liberates witnesses for lives of gospel mission. So together, let's encounter our first resurrection witness in John 20, Mary Magdalene. Now, the text doesn't give us much about Mary, but Luke does record that she was a disciple of Jesus. She was one of those disciples who followed him alongside the original 12 disciples as they proclaimed the gospel together. The text says that seven demons had been cast out of her and includes her in a group of women who not only went around proclaiming the gospel with Jesus, but who by their own means, which means that they were wealthy, by their own means, supported, helped to support Jesus and his disciples. In other words, she was a disciple who proclaimed and enabled the gospel message that freed her from slavery to evil, slavery to demons, slavery to sin. This is the Mary that we encounter in John 20 as night turns to day. Look at the text with me. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and and we don't know where they have put him. You see, Jesus has died, and the darkness of his death still lingers three days later as Mary approaches his tomb. A cave made out of stone with a bench to lay a body on and a stone to seal out predators, both human and animal. She approaches, and as her eyes continue to adjust to the darkness of the early hours of the morning, she sees the tamper-proof seal of two-ton stone tampered with, rolled up and out of the groove meant to keep it in place. Asleep in its watch, the tomb has left her Lord vulnerable to predators. And when that information finally registers, she books it to the closest disciples she can find, Peter and the disciple Jesus loved, otherwise known as John himself. She puts two and two together and she reports to these two men that that Jesus' body is not only gone, but it's been stolen. The story says that the disciples react to her report and they run to the tomb. And the story then shifts its focus to Peter and to John and what happened at the tomb. And and we'll get to them, but I want us to keep our focus on attention, our attention, our focus on Mary a little while longer. So the camera actually pans back to her in verse 11, and we read this. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. You see, the, the, the sun has continued to rise. And she doesn't notice the light that streams through her tears. The grief and pain has has grown as she comes to grips with what's happened. Jesus was killed and he was buried in the closest tomb that that was nearby as quickly as possible before Sabbath came and all work was restricted. And and now she's come at the beginning of the week to finish what what Nicodemus and, and Joseph started. And now she can't even do that. These, these leaders, they, they, they killed her Jesus, and now they figured out a way to add insult to injury and vandalize his tomb and violate his body by stealing it. Her tears wrap her in grief, even as they bend her eyes down into the tomb to verify what her heart fears. The scene she imagines is a, a tomb of a chaotic smash and grab. But instead, she is met with two sacred messengers of God. These angels dressed in white who ask her a question that is at the same time kind as it is slightly corrective. Woman, why are you crying? In some ways, they might even be asking, why are you still crying? There is evidence in the air that God has been at work and don't you feel it? Her answer to the angels is muffled by the presence of another. 
At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. The one she has been crying over, the the one she has been looking for, the one that was stolen from her was now the one standing before her. And the text says she doesn't realize that it is him. Now, this is not a knock on Mary, right? The the text actually says in, in Luke and even in the next chapter of John that there are multiple disciples who actually struggle to recognize Jesus the first time they see him. So this isn't a knock on Mary, but in this moment, she's wrapped in grief. Her eyes and her heart are struggling to recognize the Jesus that she is grieving and that stands before her. And then, then this Jesus repeats the question of the angels. Woman, why are you crying? Again, kindness and correction fills the space around Mary in the presence of someone who asks, who reveals more than they're saying by their question. And, and that kindness gives way to another question. A question that invites Mary to more than cadaver recovery, but a Messiah rediscovery of just who this Jesus really is. Who is it that you are looking for? And I got to say this morning, the question jumps off the page and grips my heart. Who is it that I am looking for? Who is it that you are looking for? Who is it that we look for to save us? We may not put it in those terms all the time, but our hearts certainly think in those kinds of categories, right? Where we look to political leaders or religious authorities or society as some abstract whole or even turned inward, we look to our own twisted abilities and ways of thinking to liberate us, to make sense of life for us, to keep us safe, to explain our suffering and our grief and our pain and and our uncertainty and our fear to save us from however we have defined sin or evil for ourselves. Whether it's the other political party, the other church down the street, the rest of society degrading and devolving, or even our own self-understanding and self-discovery restricted by anyone who doesn't agree with their own self-assessment. Who are we looking for this morning to liberate us, to save us, to free us? Mary's response in this moment is still muffled by her grief as she tries to make sense of this stranger. Her thoughts take hold of the assumption that that this must be the gardener. But Jesus doesn't correct her in this moment. No, instead, he calls her by name. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher, in one word, Spoken like he always spoke it, he wiped her tears. He cleared her grief, and her sorrow, her sadness was swallowed up in surprise, overwhelmed by joy. The one whose body she was trying to recover stands before her now, and he calls her by name. Now, what you got to know about Mary's name is that it's extremely common at this time. Right? If you just track through the stories of the gospel, you almost have to take notes just to keep all your Marys straight. And if I do say so myself, I kind of understand that situation as a person whose name is Eric. Right? I worked in a retail store that had four different Erics spelled with four different ways, and so you can imagine that our names were never spelled right ever. The church I worked at previously had three Erics on staff, so you can imagine the chaos that would ensue when someone called our name from across the room. But I'll tell you this, I have never been confused when I hear my name carried on the voice of my wife. I have never been confused when I hear two little voices calling me by the name that they know, Daddy. 
I know exactly who is speaking and I know exactly who they are speaking and asking for. But there's another voice that calls my name that meets me at a depth that I can't fully explain or understand. It is the voice of the shepherd of John 10, 2 through 4, who calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The one whose sheep follow him because they know his voice. This one calls me by name and my soul jumps. This is the one that stands before Mary now and he calls her by name. She knows his voice and her soul jumps. This morning, do you know that he calls you by name? I mean, really no. Like, have you heard him calling your name? Jesus, the one through whom all things have been made. Nothing was made without him. The one who knows you better than anyone else in the world because he made you and he loves you more than anyone else in the world. That Jesus not only knows your name, but he calls you by name this morning. The one who died for you. The one who rose from the grave for you. The one who right now sits at the right hand of God and pleads on your behalf for you. The one who paved the way back to God by his life, death, and resurrection. He knows your name. He knows your name, Bill. He knows your name, Jeff. He knows your name, Sergio. He knows your name, Leanne. He knows your name and he calls you by it. He calls you to come to him. He calls you like he called Mary. And at the sound of his voice, something happens in our souls. We recognize the voice of our one and only shepherd. We recognize the voice of our creator. We recognize the voice of our savior. And his voice draws us to him. And our soul jumps in joy and in worship. And that's what Mary does here. She clings to him, and as the scene unfolds, Jesus actually has to tell her, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I, I, Mary is reacting entirely appropriately here. Right? She's worshiping Jesus, but Jesus has a task for her. He has a mission for Mary. Go, he tells her. Go and tell the disciples, my brothers, my new siblings, tell them that I am doing what I said I would do. I'm going back to my father and my God. But now, because of what I have done, he is also your father and your God. Don't just tell them what you've seen. Tell them what it means. Something has fundamentally changed. So go, preach the gospel. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Jesus sent Mary on mission like he sends you on mission. Like he sends us on mission. Have you ever thought about the fact that every account of the resurrection actually starts with Mary as the first witness? That God entrusted Mary with and assigned Mary to deliver the good news of his resurrection first. At this time, the testimony of a woman, even the testimony of multiple women, was not admissible in court. In this society, and unfortunately too often in our own society even now, the word of a woman is given virtually no weight. And yet, the creator of the universe, the lover of our souls, names Mary first, 
honors her as the first one to witness and communicate that witness to the world. God loves to, and, and TVC, I mean really loves to, choose who the world would deem foolish, who the world does not value, and who the world thinks is weak, to confuse the quote-unquote wise, to disgrace the quote-unquote strong. He is a God who chooses and honors and validates and elevates this woman, his daughter, his disciple, to preach his gospel. Mary, to be the first witness of this gospel, he sends Mary on mission. And he sends us on mission. He sends you on mission. Not, not because you are particularly clever or wise or strong, but because he has saved you. He has called you his because he has changed your life. And he is the one who goes before you. Mary, the first resurrection witness whose name is known by Jesus, is sent on mission by Jesus with the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Her grief was transformed into joy. In other words, at the empty tomb, before a very much alive Savior, the resurrection liberated Mary as a witness for a life of gospel mission. But she's not the only one. There are more witnesses in this story. So let me turn back to Peter and John and the disciples and encounter what, what I call this trembling group of fearful witnesses. We flash back to verse 2 of our resurrection story where Peter and John are still trying to piece together the pieces of Mary's first report as she's trying to catch her breath and tell, her, tell them what she thinks happened. Right, her first report that the, their Lord's tomb has been disturbed, has been vandalized. And so Peter and John eventually decide to go see for themselves the scene that Mary is describing for them there. It's not until later that they get her second report of their Lord's resurrection. So they go to see for themselves. Verse 3 says, Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. They, they take off and John gets there first. He, he looks inside. He sees the grave clothes but no body. And then the text says he waits for Peter. And as soon as Peter gets there, Peter goes straight into the tomb. He sees the grave clothes for himself, and then he sees something even more unusual. He sees the cloth that would have been wrapped around Jesus' head laying there, not in a pile with the other grave clothes, but, but separate. And his mind is spinning just as, as John steps into the tomb, and, and now he sees what Peter saw, and not only does he see, but the text says that he believes. Something about what his eyes have seen Evidence that his heart and mind are still struggling to comprehend. Something about the grave clothes generates belief. Not just the belief that Mary was right and there was no body in the tomb, but that something else has happened. His, his body wasn't just stolen. Somehow, some way, he had come back from the grave. And yet John explains, even at this point, he and Peter understood from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They didn't really understand what was happening. It's a, it's a really strange scene because they rush to the tomb that they thought was robbed. They step into the grave that they thought was full. They see, and at least one of them believes. They encounter this evidence that it was not robbed. I mean, after all, what kind of neat, metropolitan, polite grave robber takes a minute to take off the clothes and fold it neatly before he robs a grave? No, they see not a chaotic robbery, but a, a sacred and otherworldly scene. There is evidence in the air that God has been at work. They feel it, even if they can't quite understand it, and yet this text says that they go home. And then it goes back to the scene that we just talked about with Mary. 
So that by the time Mary encounters them again, she has a different message, a second report, a different mission. She no longer reports an empty tomb. She witnesses to a risen Savior. And then we come across verses 19 through 20 with the disciples again. The sun is beginning to set, and as the light gives way to the darkness again, the disciples are hiding. Together, yes, but hiding, the text says, behind locked doors for fear of the Jewish leaders. Huddled together, they whisper and, and, and wonder and, and, and fear and spiral into what-if scenarios that by the time the haze of horrible nightmares fills the room, Jesus cuts through them. He came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. He does not need to pick the lock or announce himself with a knock. He enters into their fear and proclaims the peace that he promised them before his death. He does not rebuke their desertion or Peter's denial. This is not the time for correction. This is the time for peace, for reunion. So he showed them his hands. He showed them his side. It really is him. His hands bear the nail scars. These are the marks of his suffering. His side bears the spear scar. These are the marks of his victory. These are the marks that identify him, not just with the flesh of humanity, but with our suffering. These marks are what draw us to the foot of the cross where we meet a God who, who is present in our suffering, who knows our suffering, and who one day promises to make everything right again. This uh, inside-out suffering way of King Jesus is reflected in this poem that was written by this pastor named Edward Shalito in the dark shadow of the brutality of World War I. It's a poem that is called Jesus of the Scars, and I want to read it to you this morning to understand this upside-down kind of way of the kingdom. He writes, If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus, of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are, have no fear, show us thy scars, we know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. The suffering Savior. The God with wounds, the resurrected one, answers suffering and fear with his presence. And the text says that the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Jesus turned their fear into joy by his presence. And this morning, as we step through the text in the portrait of fearful witnesses, we see that Jesus can turn our fear into joy by his presence. The fear that frustrates faithful witness can be transformed, reformed, molded into joy that jumpstarts, give my life for this kind of witness. What does that transformation look like in our lives this morning? How does the resurrection and more specifically the living presence of Jesus communicated through his Holy Spirit mold our fears into the kind of joy that lives on gospel mission? What are you afraid of? What causes you to shrink back from telling others about Jesus? What I'm talking about here is not just talking to the waiter at the restaurant either. 
or the person sitting next to you on the airplane. I'm talking about your family, your coworkers, your family, your, your friends, your neighbors. I'm talking about more than handing out a tract or sneaking the gospel into a conversation. I'm talking about witnesses liberated by the resurrection from fear and fitted with joy for lives of gospel mission. What are you afraid of? This morning, would you let Jesus answer that fear with his presence, with the marks of his suffering? Let him liberate you from fear and fill you with joy on mission. But look at the clarification that of the mission that Jesus gives these joyful witnesses in the text. We got some clarity in the mission that's given to Mary, but look at how the the disciples are given mission in verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Again, he proclaims peace in this moment, just in case they missed it the first time, and then he sends them. He sends them like his father sent them, and he sends them by the Holy Spirit to proclaim forgiveness. When he describes this sending, it's in the same category as his sending. And what that means when he describes this sending, when he sends them as his father has sent them, it's that their mission is lined up with his, or better yet, his mission is theirs. Theirs is his mission. They continue the mission he entered the world with, the mission he went to the cross for, the mission he is now raised from the dead to proclaim And this mission, the text says, is characterized by the Holy Spirit, right? Empowered by the Holy Spirit, the church, God's people are to be conduits, pathways, tunnels for the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God for a world that he loves so much, he died for it. Which informs the final clarification of this mission, to proclaim forgiveness. Now, What Jesus is talking about here is not just that the church has this power or divine responsibility to give or withhold forgiveness of sins. No, this is about the church proclaiming the gospel, which is the forgiveness of sins. All who believe it are forgiven and all who reject it are not. Ultimately, it is God who is the one that's doing the forgiving and the withholding. And here's what I mean by that. If you track the story of the church in Acts, you'll see that over and over again, that these disciples, they proclaim Jesus and through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. Never, and I mean never, do they take this and directly forgive people's sins in their own name. Never do they withhold forgiveness of sins from people by their own power. Always it is through the proclamation of the gospel. And the gospel proclaims that by Jesus' death, And because of his resurrection, our sins have been paid for. Sins can be forgiven. In short, the gospel proclaims peace. He proclaims peace. I want you to hear the repetition of peace be with you in this text, not as Jesus just saying hello a bunch of times to his disciples. He's underlining the peace that he promises. You see, on the other side of his cross and resurrection, the peace he gives is not just peace for anxiety and grief, although it is that, and the Bible does talk about that kind of peace. Here, he gives peace with God. This morning, Jesus proclaims peace to us. No longer do we have to be rebels. Now we can be kingdom citizens. We can be siblings in the faith, children of God. The resurrected Christ assures us that there is peace available for all who believe, peace with God and peace with each other. And he begins by declaring peace to these fearful witnesses who by his resurrection are liberated as witnesses whose lives are marked by gospel mission. Mary, the first resurrection witness liberated, 
The disciples, a group of fearful witnesses, liberated. He turned their fear into joy and proclaimed peace that they might proclaim peace to others by the forgiveness of sins. And yet there is one disciple who's missing from this moment. The text tells us that one disciple was not in this room cowering in fear. And who knows where he was at this point, but now the story brings us along with this group of joy-filled witnesses to convince a skeptical witness of the truth of the resurrection. Similar to Mary, there's not a lot of information about this skeptical witness named Thomas. The Gospel of John gives us the most details. His nickname is Didymus, or twin, and he shows up in two other scenes. And in each of these scenes, there's kind of this hint of cynicism, right? Uh, Pessimism, maybe even skepticism. And Thomas is the kind of person who analyzes, right? Who wants all of the data, who is slow to agree, quick to doubt. In other words, he is a disciple much like many of us. Right? And as a skeptical witness, Thomas provides this encouraging picture for skeptics like us. Right? Because Thomas wants evidence. And the text says that Jesus gives him evidence, which is encouraging because it means that there is evidence to be given to those who truly seek Jesus. This is the Thomas we encounter in John 20, 24, where it records Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is not so quick to believe the other disciples. He demands real evidence, right? Something that only Jesus could provide, right? He doesn't just want to touch the nail marks in his hands. He wants to see and touch the wound that only Jesus would have had, his spear-pierced side. And Thomas actually gets his wish in John 20, 26. A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Again, Jesus comes into the room and proclaims peace, but this time, he turns to Thomas and speaks directly to him. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus provides the evidence Thomas asked for even as he calls him to stop doubting. Jesus doesn't disown him, but he does rebuke him, even if mildly. And we skeptics would do well to hear this rebuke, because skeptics are welcome here. But sometimes we need to listen when Jesus tells us to stop doubting. Sometimes our skepticism does not so much protect us as prevent us from life and joy and belief. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Did Thomas touch his hands and his side? The text doesn't really say, but it seems like the very sight of Jesus overwhelms Thomas into belief, and it comes out of him. It explodes out of him. My Lord and my God. This is not the profanity of someone who was surprised, but the praise of someone who was persuaded by the presence of Jesus. In other words, Jesus in this moment turns doubt into belief. Thomas's confession is personal. My Lord. My God, just like Mary's answers above when she says that they have taken my Lord away, so Thomas's confession is intensely personal. And these are the only two instances in all of John's gospel that anyone talks to Jesus like this. For Mary, her relationship was broken by grief and then mended into mission. For Thomas, his relationship was broken by doubt and mended into belief. 
For both of them, the resurrection liberated them as, as witnesses for lives of gospel mission. And this morning, Jesus' resurrection does the same for you. It does the same for me. It does the same for us. This morning, he can turn your doubt into belief. We may not have the physical evidence of Jesus' nail-pierced hand or spear-pierced side, but we do have the written verbal evidence of his eyewitnesses. We do have the living and breathing evidence of his witnesses called the church, living out the liberation of the resurrection. Let him turn your doubt into belief this morning. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus is thinking about you and me, about skeptics like Thomas, when he breaks the fourth wall, so to speak, in this next verse. He almost looks at us from the page in verse 29 when he says, Because you have seen me, Thomas, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There is a time coming, Jesus anticipates in this blessing, when the physical evidence won't be available. A time when all who believe come to that belief without the advantage of a risen physical Jesus standing before them. Blessed are you when you cannot do as Thomas did and put your hands on my hands, put your eyes on my side. See the marks of my crucifixion. Blessed are you when you read Thomas's experience and in so doing join Thomas's faith and believe. Blessed are you. Because as Peter later writes in 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. And then even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Stop doubting and believe. Each witness up until this point has been liberated by the resurrection. Liberated from grief and fear and doubt. Liberated into mission and joy and belief. Liberated as witnesses for lives of gospel mission. Mary, the first resurrection witness, liberated. This group of fearful witnesses, these disciples, liberated. Thomas, the skeptical witness, liberated. And in each liberation, there has been one witness that has been consistent. That has communicated the power of the resurrection that embodies the very freedom he proclaims, and it is the one who enables and models life on gospel mission. As we come to a close, I want us to go back through the text and see Jesus, the ultimate witness. You see, the consistent character in each scene is Jesus himself. Jesus, the risen one. Jesus, the savior king. Jesus, the ultimate witness, the one who stood before Pilate on bogus charges and said, the reason I was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. The one who in Revelation 3.14 is named the amen, the faithful and true witness. This is the Jesus who testifies, who witnesses to the power of God to save sinners by his death and his resurrection. This is the Jesus who is the ultimate witness, and this is the one who calls us by name like he called Mary, the one who sends you on mission, the one who turns fear into joy, the one who proclaims peace, the one who turns doubt into belief. And this morning, he is the one who offers life to all who believe. You see, John breaks into the scene between Jesus and Thomas to explain this in the text. This is what we've been working toward all morning, that text that we read together at the beginning, John 20, 30 through 31. Verse 30 says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. In other words, G John is here explaining how the book that he has just written has come about. 
He's peeling back the curtain on his editing process. He's explaining all this, this editing process of all of these signs and miracles and things. Right? He says, listen, Jesus did a lot of things. Right? He performed even more signs than are here. And they're not all written down here. But that's not because I couldn't fit them all in. It's because I had a point. These signs I have recorded for you here, the one I included and pieced together here, these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is not just writing history here. He's not just trying to get all the details right in order to preserve a historical account. John is unapologetically writing to convince us that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, John doesn't fudge on any of the details. He doesn't mess with the facts, right? He's, he's moving from event to event, building a case for the identity of this man who lived in Israel in the first century. The facts are verifiable. There are witnesses, he says. He did this in the presence of his disciples. There are other characters in the story who, who would jump at the chance to discredit these accounts. This is actual and true history. But this is not just some academic exercise that John is engaging in. This is a gospel exercise. John wants us to believe. And even then, he tells us that's not my ultimate goal. John wants us to believe in Jesus because Jesus offers life. Believe that by believing, you may have life in his name. Faith is not even the mission. Life is. Faith is not some kind of nebulous, fuzzy, cloudy, generic trust. Faith, belief, the kind of believing that John says leads to life it's faith with actual content. Faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the promised Savior, the one God said would come and save his people from their sins. Faith in Jesus as the Son of God, that like the Nicene Creed says, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father, that Son of God. Faith in this Jesus who is both suffering Savior and conquering King. Faith in the God-man who came, lived, died, was buried, and on the third day rose again from the grave. This Jesus, this same Jesus, offers us life this morning. He offered life to Mary, the first witness, and she took it by faith. He offered life to the disciples, these fearful witnesses, and they grabbed hold of it by faith. He offered life to Thomas, that skeptical witness, and he took it by faith. And by his resurrection, he liberates these witnesses for lives of gospel mission. And so as we approach a moment of prayer and reflection this morning, I want you to think about this. This morning, he calls us to do the same as all these witnesses. If you're a Christian here this morning, he has already offered you life, and by faith, you have grabbed hold of that life. You have been liberated from the slavery of sin by the power of his resurrection so that you might be witnesses in pain and suffering and fear and doubt in all of your life as you live out the mission of the gospel, as you proclaim the forgiveness of sins, as you proclaim his peace. So live out the gospel mission that his resurrection has liberated you to be a witness of. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, my prayer is that you would open your eyes to Jesus. He offers life to you this morning. 
And it may feel like the hundredth time that he's offered you life, and you might be wondering, there's no way he continues to offer it, even though I've rejected it every single time. And I'm here to tell you this morning that he offers it again, 101 times, however many times it takes for you to stop doubting and believe. His arms are open. They proclaim peace. Your sins can be forgiven if you would just come to him. Stop doubting and believe. I want us to take some time now as we pray to let these realities sink in. Would you pray with me? Father God, this morning, we proclaim your death and the resurrection of your son. We declare that we believe Jesus, we believe you are who you say you are and that you did what you said you would do. We believe that you love us. We believe that you are the Messiah, the promised one. We believe that you are the Son of God. And this morning, we proclaim with all of our family in the faith, worshiping at the West Chicago and Iglesia de Pueblo campuses, with all of our siblings in the faith that are worshiping across the western suburbs, across Illinois and this country and all over the world this morning, we proclaim with all of our family in the faith that Jesus has indeed risen from the grave. That the Lord God Almighty indeed reigns. Lord, we pray all of these things. We declare all of these truths. We believe in the name of the resurrected King.